0: Welcome. Last time I told you that some of the sermons in this series would have been recorded at the time, and today is an example of exactly that. It was 2012, the beginning of September, and my father had invited me, having spent a whole year studying theology at the London School of Theology, to deliver a sermon to my home church. This is that sermon, and it was entitled, Ears That Hear, Hearts That Serve. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path, with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. Right, let's start again. Good morning, everybody. (laughs) Um, When Dad asked me if I would like to preach, I was quite excited. And um, now I'm a bit nervous, but more excited. But he gave me the option of preaching from either of the passages today, the one from Mark and the one from James. Now, being at the London School of Theology, I've actually just been through the entirety of Mark with my lecturer. So I thought, oh, that would be a really good passage to preach on. But as I looked at it, I got the strange feeling that the Spirit was telling me, no, not that one, preach on James. And I looked at it and I thought, but Mark would be nice and easy. I've done all the notes, I know roughly what I would be saying, so can I do that one? But no, I'm going to be talking from James this morning and uh, trying to explain what it is that James means for us today as a church in our culture. Now James was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem and is often considered to have been the half-brother of Jesus. At the start of the epistle or the letter, he addresses it to the 12 tribes of the diaspora, or as your Bibles have translated it, to the 12 tribes scattered among the, among the nations. I say as your Bibles have translated, because I will be referring to the verses as I go through them. So if you'd like to open it up, I'm afraid I forgot to check what page number it's on, but it's James chapter 1, starting at verse 9. Um, pardon? page 1233, what he said. (laughs) Now his letter is written to his people who had scattered and were being persecuted, to those whose way of living marked them out as obvious strangers in the cultures around them. Now this is happening in the context of Acts 11, uh, 19, Uh, because once Stephen died it wasn't safe for Jews to be around, so they all scattered everywhere. And in these situations where they were being persecuted in their cultures, it's important to keep your faith safe and to trust in God for your protection and your needs rather than your own abilities. After all, we know what happened back in the book of Judges, where the Israelites were surrounded by other cultures and began to worship false gods with disastrous consequences, until God sent yet another judge to rescue and lead Israel. So James is writing this letter to encourage those Christians that are being persecuted. And his primary focus isn't try and and blend in, keep your head down, hang in there, keep your mouth shut and hope no one notices you. Rather than how to fit in, he's actually talking about how to stand apart. Not as rebels or troublemakers but as a part of a holy people called by God. In short, in this letter James is calling on all Christians everywhere in any culture that is dominated by values that aren't their own to be holy and proud. Now, holiness is a word that is often used for Christians, and sometimes not favourably, with Christians being accused of acting all holier than thou, as if they're somehow better than other people. And um, it's often used in connection with another Christian's good behaviour. So you might say, you know, oh, Tom, he lives such a holy lifestyle, he's such a, an admirable person. But, but whilst holiness does include behaviour, has a much greater focus, God. In the Old Testament, God is constantly present and often acting, and we can learn a huge amount about what he is like, but it's incredibly hard to visualise him, to define him. It's much easier in the New Testament, where we read in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the introductory verses of that chapter equate the word with God. The word is God. So in the New Testament, we can visualise God as Jesus, because Jesus is God. Yet back in Exodus, when Moses is confronted by the burning bush, God reveals himself simply as, I am that I am, (laughs) simply. So, what does that statement mean? To explain, God says that he is what he is. Whereas the false gods of the time, such as the Egyptian gods, were very specific things. Uh, For instance, there was the god of the dead called Anubis, who was a man with a jackal's head. Or you had the god of the sun called Ra, that was a man with a hawk's head and a big red fancy hat to show that he was the sun god. These gods have very specific attributes, they did very specific roles, and there was lots of them. These specific attributes give them specific limitations. In a way, these gods are shown to be false by their definability. The God of the Israelites is not limited like these are. He is higher than creation. He is above labels and limitations, and in some ways higher than our own understanding. For as the teacher points out in Ecclesiastes, God is in heaven and you are on earth. And so what we find is that for God to be God, he has to be different from what we know on earth. He is by his very nature himself within himself and distinct from creation. He is set apart, he is holy. If God is so other from us, then how can we know him? Well that would be a huge sermon in its own right, but the short and true answer is because he loves us. He wants us to know him. This is shown through the series of covenants that start with Noah in Genesis 6, to Abraham in Genesis 12, all the way down through the prophets and David, all the way up to Jesus, who who presents the new covenant at the Last Supper. That's why early on in Leviticus, we get the first call to holiness. God says to Moses, Tell the people, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, because I am holy. God is saying to the Israelites that he is different from the other gods of the land, so they must be different from the cultures that worship those gods. I am different, so you too must be different. It is precisely this theme of God-related holiness that James is writing about in today's passage. Just like the Christians that James wrote to, we live in a society where God is not the main focus. In our culture, in England, at worst Christians are marginalised by not being allowed to wear crosses in the workplace, or by the prohibition of prayers at council meetings that was in the papers a few months ago. In other parts around the world, Christians run the risk of dying for their faith, such as Muslim converts in Saudi Arabia or anyone with a Bible in their possession in North Korea. However, the issue we face is completely different, and much harder to grasp, that of general apathy. The culture around us, on the whole, doesn't know if there is a God. But more importantly, it doesn't particularly care if there is a God. As such, it's reminiscent of the cultures surrounding the Israelites, when Judges says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. This seems remarkably similar to our modern day culture where something can be right for you but not for me. A culture where morality has become subjective. So what James wrote to the early Christians could well have been written for us right here, right now. And the first thing he says is brothers, the first thing he says is my brothers, take note of this. This is a particularly important point he's about to make. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry for a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. So are you listening faster than I am talking? That's not quite what he's trying to say. He's not saying you have to speak slowly and listen really quickly. He's saying that Sometimes we rush to conclusions. We hear someone say something, perhaps out of context, and we make the wrong conclusion and then act on it in the wrong way, rather than actually being patient and seeing what God wants us to do about a situation. We've got to make sure that we're not just running off on false assumptions, but actually pursuing the righteousness that God is desiring. James is highlighting throughout this small passage the consequences of living by the standards of the world and not God's. Um, he then carries on uh, out of the episode. We are often hasty to jump to conclusions. We are guilty of listening to sermons and not acting on them, of not doing a, devot- of doing a devotional in the morning and then mentally putting a tick in the God box for the day. James says in verses 23 to 24 uh, from the New Living Translation. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. Or to change this metaphor slightly, in the morning when I wake up, because I've got long hair, my hair is all over my face like this. Now, if I go out and I look in a mirror and I just look at it and I go, yeah, and then carry on with my day-to-day life, I A look daft, and B I can't really see what I'm doing, and it's completely missed the point and purpose of a mirror. Yet when I look in the mirror in the morning, what I'm supposed to do is look at my reflection and sort my hair out, so that I can see and hopefully look a bit less daft. Does that make sense? It's very similar in this way to how we're supposed to treat the Word of God. It isn't enough to just hear it. We need to actually act on it. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Verse 25 then goes on to say, The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Um, Mum. I think the battery is starting to die in this. It keeps flashing red. So if I shout at you, can you move it on? Thanks. (coughs) So, the man who looks intently into the perfect law, but gives freedom, and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This verse seems almost simple. Just do what God wants and he'll be happy with you. Well... Actually, what this verse is summing up is the relationship that God has with his people all the way through the Bible. Earlier I mentioned the covenants, and covenants are special promises between two groups of people that detail their obligations to each other, and that they have to keep to, terms and conditions. We have to keep to his terms and conditions, and so does God. When we live by the standard of holiness as revealed in the law, God meets with us, and as we glorify him, he glorifies us. So what should we do? How can we live this life of holiness? James says in verse 21, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. The Greek for planted is emphyton, which suggests a permanent placing. One commentator suggests that a better translation might actually be engraved. Uh, engraved. So accept the word which is engraved into you. Let the word actively do something to you. Change something about who you are. So how can we know what moral filth is? And how can a word save us or change us? As I said earlier, we can picture God as Jesus because at the start of John, he makes it clear that Jesus is the word of God. Now as Christians, we say the creed and we say we believe in God the Father, Jesus, uh, Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what we call Trinity. Now according to John we can use the name Jesus or the name the Word. So it's perfectly correct to say we believe in God the Father, the Word and the Holy Spirit. Now one way to look at this is that God the Father is the one who created the world and sustains it. The Word is the part of God that interacts with us through the prophets and scripture and most importantly, by becoming human in the person of Jesus and the Holy and in the person of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of God that we are aware of when we pray, or when people are healed, or when miracles happen. So if Jesus is the word, what is moral evil? Simply put, it is sin, which is living and behaving in a manner that is orientated away from God as king. God gave the Israelites the law give them a structure, a mechanism, as an aid to help them focus on him and to avoid sin. The law is designed to help people live in holiness, in relationship to God. That's why the longest psalm, Psalm 119, talks in depth about how precious the word is to the psalmist. And I know this isn't a school lesson or whatever, but if anyone would like to do some homework, may I suggest that after the service you go away and actually read Psalm 119. It's very long, but the first 24 verses... Um, actually sum up very almost precisely what James is feeling is about the word and I think it would be interesting for you to read it. Now the problem with the law is that the standard is high. It's very hard to actually achieve what the law desires from us. The word of God has revealed that to live in relationship with God we must complete all the terms and conditions and yet we keep on sinning we fail to match up to this really high criteria that God demands. So, because he loves us, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live as a human being. And Jesus fulfilled the law. He met all the requirements. As a man, he was able to live the perfect life and to be the perfect sacrifice as required by the law to atone for sin. As God, he was able to reach out to humanity and offer us a love so strong that it took him to the cross to die for us. Failure to fulfil the law ultimately equals death. Yet when death was confronted with one who had fulfilled the law, it lost its power and could not restrain him any longer. By Jesus dying for us as a perfect human being, when he is resurrected, he is resurrected for us. He takes us from the realm of sin and ungodly desires He carries us through the death that we should have had and delivers us into the life that God desires to give us. So as the word of God who has died for us and lives for us, Jesus is the perfect person to ask the question, well, how should we live our lives? What do we need to do to avoid this moral evil James is saying to avoid? Well fortunately, Jesus was once asked, next slide please, thank you, someone said, "'Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law?' He replied with, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, "'and with all your mind.'" This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. "'Love your neighbour as yourself.'" All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is what God expects from us. This is his standard, But if we claim to love him, we are expected to live by. James supports this by saying, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Throughout Hebrew literature the tongue is seen as a symbol for both what people say and what people do. So if you claim one thing, but do another, then your religion is worthless. If we live as hypocrites, then we live in vain. James concludes by saying, verse 27, taken from the New Living Translation Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So, the message of James for us today is that when we live in a culture where self is king, where pleasure is the motivator, where the orientation of people's lives is away from God, what counts? Is standing up and being counted. We should live our lives not by the standards of the world, but by the standard of righteousness that God desires. We should focus on others, not just ourselves. Just as our God is different from the gods of the cultures around us, whether they be half man, half wolf, or drugs and money or respect and prestige. So we should live our lives differently than those who follow false gods. This is not to say we should antagonise them, or even act in reverse to them, because then you're still living your life, measuring your life by their standards. Rather, we want to measure our lives by the standard that God desires for us. We are called to enter into a relationship with God through Christ's death. And having entered into that relationship, we are called to carry on with it. What God wants from us today is for us to use our ears and to hear his word, speaking speaking into our lives, and to let that word reside in our hearts, shaping what we do. So, the message for today's sermon really is this. James said, listen to the word and do. Jesus, the word of God, said, love God and love your neighbour. Amen.